Hi, and welcome to the Slash Podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founder Studio stage, where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. Michael Buckwald is an expert in human-computer interaction. He's the CEO of LeapMotion, a company that's developing motion control technology for VR. Henny Roine talked with him about taking a leap into a three-dimensional future. So first, I would like to know, how, how did you get into tech? Your studying background isn't exactly technical. I, if I remember correctly, it was more like philosophy and uh, political science. So how did you get into tech after that? That is true. Um, it, my background was, was um, philosophy, uh, which I'd like to say has been eminently useful, um, but, but not really. Um, although, uh, I, you know, I, I think that the, the thing that attracted me to technology was, was not the technology itself necessarily, although that is very special, but rather the way in which the technology industry has has created sort of a unique potential for people to to immediately make a difference at a young age without having to you know go through a cycle of you know a, a decade of sort of not being able to apply yourself to a, to an actual problem that matters in the world and um, I didn't I guess I was impatient and didn't want to wait so so how did you go from there to actually found leap motion eventually I, I had um, been friends with my co-founder, who um, is, is David Holtz, and um, David and I had grown up in Florida together, which is um, another thing that we're not necessarily proud of. Um, and then uh, David was doing research at NASA and Max Planck for brain research and doing lots of other things, but he felt like even though he himself was working on you know, many, many different things that... Um, that uh, actually the thing that would have the most impact on the world would be to work on something that would lift everyone up. And that led him to this idea that if you can solve this gap between you know, humans and technology, that uh, you can make researchers, scientists, um, and and children, um, and you know, people building simulations, and um, people who are building safety tools for miners, and people who are building technology for, uh, for for people who are going through stroke rehabilitation. So uh, that I think that's that's really been the that's kind of the, the the origin of that excitement. Yeah. So you have been working on many of these sort of projects. So what would you say would be the most interesting one? What you have worked on? I think there's there's a very sort of unique combination of things for 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 Leap Motion as a business that uh, attract. And obviously, the fact that we have the ability to be both a great business um, in the sense that uh, solving this problem is so hard that, but at the same time, the global problem that exists that's created through input is is so um, is so just true. Um, so, on one hand, there's a lot of factors you don't control, but at the same time. There is this sense of uh, controlling your own destiny in the sense that if you can solve this very hard problem, that 
um, you can not only make an impact on the world, um, but also create a great business and that those two things don't have to be separate. And in fact, are I think the more impact you have on the world in, in this particular business, the similarly the greater impact you have uh, from a technology and business perspective. So th that's definitely, I think, what, what, what kind of attracted me to, to the business. So um, I've actually been to your office and, and tried your product over there. Um, and I was super amazed at how accurate the product actually is. Like it truly recognizes like all of your movements with your hands. So, but that technology isn't yet like mainstream technology. So obviously like you talk on the stage, you like have your smartphones and you move it like this, but the, like, the technology what Leap Motion has is not mainstream. So when do you think it will become mainstream? And what would it need? What, like what would it need to be do done that it would become mainstream? So I think that, I think hands themselves are, you know, one, of, one of the greatest potential for hands is, is to make things mainstream. And I think that there, are, if you look at the past decades of technology, there have been very few moments where something has gone from being for a you know, very niche part of the tech ecosystem to being mainstream. And you know, perhaps with the first sort of GUIs with the mouse and then perhaps uh, with you know, something like the iPhone and a direct skeuomorphic paradigm that, that took truly a decade or more to happen, um, even though there were many, many attempts at smartphones during that time. So uh, there has to be this perfect marriage of the UX and it has to follow a, a direct metaphor. And I think that truly, unless a regular user can figure out how to use the system from the very first moment they open it, um, truly within 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 seconds of opening it in the first application, uh, I think that if you sort of look at history, the likelihood of that product actually being successful in a exponentially disruptive way is 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 unlikely. Uh, and I think that that means that you have to aim for something like someone wearing a VR headset and reaching out with their hands and instantly seeing their hands and seeing objects that are like buttons or dials or knobs or blocks that react exactly as they would if they touched them. Uh, and through that, you know, hopefully over time, you can then undergo the same transition that we've seen with, say, mobile phones, where things started out with an explicitly skeuomorphic paradigm uh, in order to make that immediately accessible. But over time, as regular people have become more sophisticated, things have become more design-centric, and we've moved towards sort of a more of a flat design paradigm. Yeah, so um, you actually founded Leap Motion with your co-founder back in 2010, right? Um, so how was it to actually start a company with such a like disrupting way of like human-computer interaction when the tech back then wasn't even what it is right now? So like, what were the challenges what you faced back then, like when looking for fu like funding and everything like that? Yeah, it was it was very hard, uh, and uh, you know we we moved out to California together, uh, and then we would carry the first prototype, which was a sort of fifty pound like backpack um, that we carried around that had little duct taped uh, like LEDs on it, and you would set it up in a circle, and it might take an hour to set up, and um, often it wouldn't work, but it could track one finger very accurately. And there was a demo of 
Google Earth and we could let you know prospective investors move around with with a finger and there was this this sense still of that connection that we wanted even though obviously it required people to make a leap of faith that you could go from that to something actually that is a product um, and I would say that even after that first point and after the product started to mature it, it truly has I think always been a a five or ten year mission, and you know, I think if some if some people you know, bought our device when it first was released in 2012 for the PC, um, it, it, it it that device itself and the software behind it has is now probably three or four completely different generations. Um, where uh, you know, I, I guess our our team has been audacious enough to you feel like even though this is the best in the world, it's not good enough to actually hit this 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 um, sort of philosophy of, of uh, direct interaction and a full skeleton and uh, because of that even though it's at 80% we're going to start from scratch again so there have been four or five versions like that but a lot of people might have not even realized that because uh, it's, the technology has always been so software focused that uh, people might have the same peripheral they had in 2012 but uh, it might have auto-updated software that makes it radically, radically different than what was out there then. Okay, thank you. Um, I think we can now move on to the audience questions. Um, the most liked question so far is, what is uh, a solution for the low-performance AR classes like uh, Vuecik M300 or Epson BT? I think that there are a few different categories of problems with, with current VR glasses. and. One are, one are things that I think will be solved with more investment and time, uh, because obviously the first generation of companies that are targeting virtual reality have to work with less custom you know, semiconductors and less custom optics, and there isn't the investment from the large you know, multinational semiconductor companies or optics companies um, in, in terms of billions of dollars, but I think we are beginning to see that happen, and certainly I think that We've seen an acceleration from things like Google's investment in Magic Leap. So I think even though that it's, it's a question as to whether that will happen in one year or two years or three years or, or five years. But I think that that problem, the, the size, the, the optics, it, it will eventually solve itself. But uh, I think there are, there's a separate class of problems also, of course, which are around the field of view and as a part of the field of view also just the entire sort of combination and theory of the software and the interaction where uh, similar to how so many people have attempted smartphones that use styluses or try to combine a tablet with touch with uh, a Windows operating system that was built for a mouse th those things don't go together so uh, there has to be not just a combination of new input, but also a combination of new operating systems, a combination of, of a new software paradigm. And, but also, that has to come together with things like wider field of view, because even the best hand tracking in the world and the best, most novel use cases don't really matter if the user's interaction space is just, is just this tiny box in front of their head. So uh, there, there are still a lot of challenges that have to be solved, but 
Um, but there's, but we are, we're, we're definitely in an exciting time where, where everything is accelerating very quickly. Okay, um, you mentioned leap motion. There was actually a, also a question about that. So 500 um, million finance right for leap motion. Um, so what, what do you think about it, and, and what, why do you think they are considered better? Why have they gone so, so, so much funding, even though they haven't actually released anything yet? Yeah, it's probably probably magic leap, and uh, and, and uh, we're, we're the other leap. Um, but uh, I think that I think it's understandable and probably normal for companies to start out with prototypes that are much more simple and. I think it's implicit from an investor perspective that people are taking something that is very big and not being designed for mass production and, and being made small. And obviously, uh, I think you know no one knows what the conversations were, but presumably smart people were you know asked were asked to believe that they could make it small. And uh, I you know, certainly I think that they have a capital advantage and they have a content advantage and. But I think what will, and I think there is a, there is a general sense, not just from New Magic Leap, but also from from all of the major companies that are working on air headsets, that uh, given how much money and complexity goes into solving these problems for the first time, but then how sort of easy it is once they exist in the market to reverse engineer them, uh, that it's it's really about optimizing around a very tight timetable where you have to have such a powerful content and sort of market lead that um, that can, can 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 help you endure even though suddenly you're competing against you know, companies that are um, expert at building these types of devices at orders of magnitude more scale than you have um, and that every every day after you launch that that gap you have from your years of research and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, is is compressed. So, in some ways, I think that the the real question is not about sort of you know the, is is it really about the hardware? Because uh, eventually, whoever comes out with the hardware, um, whoever does solve that, uh, that will be copied and it will eventually be commoditized. As uh, just just it's taking longer. I think we've already seen that happen for VR, but it, but it, but it's taking longer, understandably, for AR. But um, I think I think that but I think the better question and bigger question is is about the who can have a sufficient head start um, to be sort of the the android of, of the space where uh, you know they, they where you become so entrenched that other people uh, you know, even in a commoditized hardware environment can't can't uh, can't really attack you or throw you off. Okay. Um. And then there was a question about semiotics. So what is the role of semiotics in your solution? And uh, do you think that visual semi semiotics will play a crucial role in publicizing AR solutions? Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think that uh, you know, without talking specifically about uh, our approaches, I think, I think that, there, I think that there is, there's a very interesting sort of deeply symbolic level at which these systems operate that... Uh, has has sort of deep applications and and you know, uh, and uh, it's I guess I'm since I'm not going to actually talk about the technology but um, but it is a good opportunity to perhaps seg to um, one of the things we were talking about which is to kind of think about how brain development can be changed in this world in a, in a sort of deep you know, fundamentally neurocognitive way where 
Uh, right now, so many of our actions that we pursue in learning is divided into sort of abstract and academic and you're either a someone who writes something on a, on a blackboard and figures out an equation um, or you're someone who throws a basketball but but even from the first day we throw that basketball you know we understand how it arcs through space um, perfectly really for the rest of our lives and and even though we may never be able to write the equation to represent that uh, the fact that there is this instantaneous understanding of how all of those permutations happen from that moment forward and for the rest of our lives, that's very interesting. And uh, if you think about you know, more prominent examples like, like, like Tony Hawk as a skateboarder, um, it is, it's interesting to think about how, um, obviously, that's an example of someone who has a prodigal sort of implementation of this physical skill and this physical learning. Uh, and on the other hand, there are incredible mathematicians and physicists who are left to think about their concepts, you know, things like quantum particles from a purely abstract perspective because we can't interact with them. Um, but uh, if you can create environments as are happening now where the brain, because of the instantaneousness and the low latency, the physicality and the richness and the stereoscopicness or, uh, of, the, of the 3D environments, where, where all of that comes together and the brain is tricked often by users um, into thinking that that something's actually happening. That uh, I think that is really just I think beginning to understand the impact that that has, um, not just in education and simulation, but uh, probably also in, in medicine and and, uh, and in so many other fields. Yeah. Um, so I think the next question is uh, a great opportunity for you to pitch leap motion. So. Um, there was a question about, like, isn't leap motion operating um, on a dying market? Like, AR classes will deliver virtual screens. We're, we're definitely not right now focused on, on making hardware ourselves. Uh, I guess, from our perspective, we're, we're focused on making things like developer kits, perhaps. Or and even, I would say, that the, our peripheral, which we've released as a mount for virtual reality or air headsets has been, it's been about giving developers access to the technology as early as possible, added as many ways as possible. But um, I would say going all the way back um, to 2010, uh, the, the philosophy and preference has always been to solve hard problems in software if possible, given particularly back then we didn't have an option really because we had no leverage with any hardware vendors or suppliers. and. Uh, over time, I guess I, I, it's, it, would, it would be wrong to say that we that there isn't any there's no novelty in the hardware because well, I think we have become expert at, at using the sort of general narrative uh, power of the space and the excitement and the potential and the desire for people to be part of innovation um, uh, to, to get you know companies like. CMOS uh, sensor companies and 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 uh, you know, lens companies and and major you know, manufacturers and ODMs to make things for us and, and to be cooperative and, and and that's that's helpful but but still um, there there's no custom silicon there's no there's there's no custom really anything and our software uh, can still run almost as well off of the same you know, uh, QVGA sensors that it shipped with in the peripheral back seven years ago as it would in something that we're embedding right now. So uh, I'd say that we're all, we've always been a software company, but at the same time, there, and the goal has always been 
for any peripheral or hardware we build to not need to exist because the technology is embedded in everything. But at the same time, when you're thinking about new spaces, there is often a need to to be proactive, and, and particularly where um, you know you can either sort of take an approach where you kind of let the monkeys have access to the typewriter and hope that they write Shakespeare, and uh, that that will possibly happen eventually. Some one of one of you know, dozens of companies using the technology after making very bad products. One someone will make a not bad product, but we would rather. Um, We'd rather try to influence it to happen faster, and that's why we we try to think about content and and uh, and infrastructure, um, you know, things like operating systems, launchers, uh, in addition to hands. But but at the same time, we w we want to be embedded so broadly that there is not a need for hardware anymore. So um, there was also a question about VR simulators. So um, when would Leap Motion be ready to be used in VR simulation? Yeah, VR simulations, it's a great area. And I would say right now, you know, we're, we're a little biased, but the end goal is, 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 is to be, I think, the mouse for, for virtual reality and, and AR. And I, I think that you know, certainly VR has certainly not reached its potential until it can live up to the basic expectations that people have had around it, which are about a sense of you know presence and, and immersion and physicality um, that, that come with hands. But but I would say at the same time there there is a there there is a there there are other sort of platforms and metaphors as well. And I think that you, one one part that we don't really think about as much is how this can also be just just sort of one of our first uh, sort of visual 3D computing metaphors and how you know, this can be one of the first opportunities where people can have both a three-dimensional representation of, of the computing environment, but also a sort of instantaneously accessible way of interacting with it with hands. And, and I'd like to say that you know, back when we started the company, we knew that in seven years, there would be huge platforms for VR and AR. And right at the time, our hands tracking had matured these spaces would exist, but uh, but we didn't. And uh, it was mostly, I guess, a sort of stubbornness and a belief that eventually, if we solved this fundamental problem that in terms of interaction and hands, that platforms would come along that needed it. Um, at whether whether that ended up as you know, advances in holographic 3D displays or audio stereoscopic 3D displays or um, things like VR or AR. Um, and obviously, things have turned out, turned out to be very interesting and it's it's exciting and, and certainly we feel a profound sense of you know obligation given that we are at the center of all of this and and, and I, I really do I think that there are there there are not many opportunities to, to take something and, and sell it to the global consciousness as a mainstream device. So I think I think it's very important that that people look at things and, and are slow and thoughtful and uh, make sure that the products that that uh, you know could be rushed to market that that will perhaps create long-term permanent delays and in, in these great technologies getting to market and having the impact that they could have on on so many different fields that we'd be thoughtful about that as an industry. Okay. Um, lastly, um, 
there was a question about the social impact of VR Air. So you have worked on with some of these social impact projects yourself. But do you think that VR Air can have any social impact? And if so, how? You know, I think there are different kinds of, of perhaps social impact. And uh, I think that there are, if you're, if you're talking, I guess, about just, just social in the sense of, of doing good and creating good, I think certainly there are great, profound use cases that we're seeing people use everything from stroke rehabilitation to uh, creating uh, sort of augmented reality experiences for surgeons in the operating room um, or helping people operate remote robots to perform combat zone you know, surgery and such. But uh, I guess from the other definition of social in the sense of uh, you know, a, a remote presence or people connecting, I, I think that I think that that that's definitely a, a, one of the best use cases of VR and AR. And I think certainly you know, when there are good experiences where you feel a sense of presence with, with even one other person, but certainly many other people, those are definitely some of the, the moments that are most magical and where there certainly is the sense of, of possibility. And I think that um, certainly there are you know, basic reasons why you need more advanced input for social experiences to be better in the sense that so much of our basic interaction in, in any environment in a virtual world is not about our us just interacting as a bare sort of stick that waves around our, our fist but but about you being a being a fully instantiated person um, but but at the same time also I think that there there are deeper uh, you know implications to creating a sense of social connection and certainly I think that a world where uh, you know, distance and physicality are, are less important is is good, and I think that's you know, on one hand, obviously, perhaps VR can be used to create more kind of better, more like creative ways to sell people virtual shovels, um, which would not be that great. But on the other hand, it can also be used as a way to drive all of the incredible talent that right now perhaps exists in gaming industries that is being used because there is no path forward perhaps we've run kind of out of what can be built with the current input you, we can have that those people thinking about how to build applications that fundamentally use vr to make children grow up and feel like they have access to any place in the world or you know, change even our concept of like certainly how we work and and relate to each other as, as humans and um that's i think that's that's a better more exciting outcome so as a last question um looking back from 2010 until today what advice would you give to uh, like an entrepreneur who are who is planning to um, have a company as like a next generation company? What you were building back in 2010 and now? Yeah, and I, it, it 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 can sound trite, but I would say I'd say that passion is is incredibly important. And but you know that, but I think I say that in a, in a in the true sense of not just I guess being passionate about like the company, but but truly. Finding something where the mission is is valuable, and uh, you know, ultimately, that given how hard it is, and certainly, even though on one hand we felt it would be incredibly hard, it was certainly, I think, for both David and I, the hardest thing that we've ever done many times over. And in those moments of extreme hardship and um, uh, the sort of extreme ups and downs. Uh, if you feel like the problem you're solving is is a is a true problem, and um, that 
that that can that drives you past that. Um, whereas if, if your motivations are otherwise, um, it, it you, you probably give up. Um, and um, it's there. There are other ways probably that are easier. Um, but uh, but on the other hand, obviously, you know, having the opportunity to have an impact on the world um, is is incredible. And um, you, and and also, I think it, there is a it is a self fulfilling prophecy in some ways because. The best, smartest people in the world want to work on hard problems that are mission-oriented as well. So um, there, there's a practical aspect to, to to being passionate about something as well. Okay, thank you. Let's give a round of applause to Michael. Thanks for listening to the Slush Podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast. And if you haven't yet done so, subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.